separate and apart from quoting a lot of scripture, I have found that, that some people just don't seem to get their act together as far as living for God. And it appeared to me in my own personal ministry that one of the greatest downfalls that I had was that I was failing to structure religion for people. Now, when I say structure religion for people, I think that's a, a very important thing that you understand what we're talking about. It is possible for you to know many, 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 many doctrines of the Bible and quote many, many, many scriptures and still not have your life in order the way that God wants your life in order. You could take a jigsaw puzzle or a picture puzzle and dump all of the pieces out on the table, and each piece would be remarkably different and yet very beautiful. Yet no particular piece within itself makes a lot of sense to you until it is connected with, the, with some of the piece. And the more pieces that you can put together, the clearer the picture becomes. And what happens to us sometimes in Christianity, or should I say in our apostolic faith, is that we know a lot of doctrines. We know the doctrine of the oneness. We know the doctrine of the baptism. We all know all about the blood. We know all about justification by faith. We know about healing. We know uh, about holiness standards and such. But it is difficult for us to put all of the pieces together the way that they ought to be. Now, all I'm attempting to do this week is to bring to you a series of very simple Bible lessons and yet put them in a structure in which you will see and understand where you really identify with the plan of God. Now, it appears to me that, that uh, what has happened to us, by and large, is that uh, all of our vocations or our lifestyles do not really hinge around the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's possible for you to have a very lovely home and church be just a part of that home. It's possible for you to have a good job, regardless of what that job may be, and God become a part of that job. It's possible for you to have an outstanding family life, an outstanding marriage. Uh, it's possible for you to have an outstanding church life, and yet uh, God just be a part of that. But as we look in the Scripture very carefully, we know that everything must be contingent, or it must hinge around Jesus Christ. You see, church is not a part of your job. Your job is a part of your life with God. It's also possible that you could uh, be misconceived in your mind that, that uh, you have an outstanding job and you put the Lord in there. But you see, no, your job fits into God. You, you, God doesn't fit into your job. You may have a beautiful home life, but God's not a part of that home life. Your home life is a part of God. What we're attempting to do this week is just build a structure in which everything that you do fits around the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very, very, very valuable and important thing for you to understand. Now, the first part of our lessons uh, this morning and this afternoon, we'll be talking about the principle of stewardship. The principle of stewardship we have uh, started explaining to you by reading in Luke 16. It's so very important that all of us understand that we are stewards. Now, what happens to us in many cases, we pick out certain things out of the Bible that we like and we compare ourselves to that. 
So we don't get the sum total of what the Lord really wants from us. Brother Tenney last evening so ably explained more than conquerors. See, sometimes we, we get the feeling that we're warriors. And that's all that we are. And so as a result, you'll find some people that always, at all times, they act like warriors. Well, while we are more than conquerors, we are more than just conquerors. You see, when you look in the Bible, our relationship with the Lord, we are, we are His body, we are His espoused bride, we are the bride of Christ, we are His friends, we are His servants, He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. You see, we play many different types in the Scripture. Now, to give an example of what I am trying to explain to you, uh, we are the bride of Christ, and yet at the same time, we are more than conquerors. We are warriors. We have on the whole armor of God. But how many of you men, when you married and on your honeymoon night, you would like to have walked into the bedroom to find that your bride had a shield and a sword and, and everything there, and she was fully clad well, you see, your relationship on that particular night would not be the type of relationship that you would be expecting. And you see, what happens to us sometimes as Christians, we get an idea in our minds as to what we are. For the most part, I found this, that Pentecostals want to be warriors all the time. And you see, the Lord doesn't want us to be warriors. There's a time to be a warrior. There's a time to be a bride. There's a time to be an espouse bride. There's a time to be a sheep of his fold. There's a time to be a servant. There's a time to be a friend to the Lord. Now, unless you understand this, it will be impossible for you to get the fullest experience out of God that God wants you to receive. Isn't it true that in a service... Quite often you'll find people dancing in the spirit and running around the perimeter of the building. Other times, as the preacher begins to minister, we sit there as hungry sheep to be fed from the word of the Lord. There are other times when there's a sweetness that comes over the congregation and we weep and cry and show our love and adoration. To our Lord, we become His bride, and we just simply adore Him and love Him for what He is. Not for what He's done or what He will do, but for what He is. That's the true relationship of love. Unless we understand that, we'll go away feeling that the service was dead if God didn't move in our warrior style. However, on the other hand, we find some people who don't like a lot of demonstration and they don't really like to be conquerors. And when people are running the aisles, they say, hey, you know, the group was really wild tonight. But what God really wants us to understand is that there is a general vein of philosophy that's found in the Scripture. And if we can get with it, we can appreciate any move of the Spirit or any work that God puts us in. So we want to talk about the principle of stewardship. Now we read to you Luke 16. We talked to you about 
a steward. A steward is really one who manages the concerns of another. Now, that simply means that he doesn't own anything. He's just a manager. A steward is an individual who has been placed in the position of managing the affairs of somebody else. Now, that simply means that the Lord has left us in charge of his own estate. You see, the church does not belong to Brother Jim Merrick. It does not belong to Pastor John Grant. It does not belong to Brother Tom Fred Tenney. The church belongs to the Lord. Peter warns us as trying to become lords over God's heritage, feeling that we actually own things. We really do not own anything in this world. Nothing in this world do we actually own. Everything belongs to God. Now, we will be covering this in a greater detail later on. But we want to give you this brief explanation as we start and lay a foundation for all of our studies this week. Now, I have taught in the state of Minnesota more than I've taught in any other state outside of Wisconsin. I've preached in more churches here than any other state outside of Wisconsin. And I've got to say that I really enjoy and love preaching and teaching in Minnesota because you people really do care about the work of the Lord and you have a deep hunger for the word of the Lord. Now that is certainly a tribute to your pastors and your shepherds that you have here in the state. So I'm not trying to be presumptuous as to say that uh, you folks don't have it. I do not believe that. And as I teach, the method or the style of my teaching might imply that, but I really want to say I appreciate Minnesota a lot. I appreciate the churches, the revival churches, the revival pastors, and the attitude that I find here in this state. Could I get uh, a brother to get me a glass of water here this morning? The Roos, would you get someone to do that? Now, a steward recognizes that he is not the owner of all that is at his disposal. He only manages someone else's estate. Now, proper recognition of this type of relationship is most vital. You've got to understand this in order to understand the philosophy of the Bible. Now, I talked to you just briefly about a balanced relationship. Let's go back to that like for you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, the 25th chapter. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. I'm going to stop reading there. This parable goes through verse 13. Then Jesus picks up on another parable. Notice in verse 14 how he starts it out. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. We'll get this down where you can see it. Now, Jesus gave us two parables. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus gave us the prophecy 
concerning his second return. Actually, there's prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple, his second return, and the end of the world. But for the most part, the prophecy deals with his second return. As Brother Tenney preached from that last evening about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in divers places. Now, when Jesus concluded the prophecy, this is what he said. Then shall the kingdom of heaven, in other words, at the time in which these things are to be fulfilled. What he's pointing out is there is a particular situation that would be prevalent in the kingdom of God at the time that these things are fulfilled. And so he talks about a relationship in which he has with us. The first relationship is a relationship of love or worship. Now, Jesus is interested in balance because he gives us two parables. After he explains this relationship, all of which he explains in full detail the importance of being a wise virgin. He then turns it around. He says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. He calls them servants here, or they are stewards. He gave unto one five talents, to another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Now you know these parables real well, and it's not important for me at this time to explain these parables. But basically what Jesus was saying is, that in the end time, in the end time, the kingdom of heaven will be like virgins who love God and worship the Lord. And certainly all of us have a love and worship relationship with God if we have any type of relationship at all. For Pentecostals are noted, for the most part, for their worship. Even people outside of the apostolic faith are called Pentecostals when they worship in a very demonstrative way. We like to clap our hands. We like to lift our hands. We like to praise the Lord. We like to worship. There's something about that tingling sensation that flows from the top of your head to the sole of your feet that just puts us up on cloud nine. We like that. Is there anything wrong with that? No, that's proper. God wants that. And I feel people who do not know how to worship God will never have the type of relationship with God that God wants. He wants a relationship in which we're not begging for anything, we're not asking for anything, we're just worshiping the Lord. But there is another side to the story. You see, God wants balance. Now, before I go into this other side of the story, I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 4, the latter scriptures of Matthew 4, and we will read from that book, and then we will go into the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 4, verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases, 
and torments and those who were possessed with devils and those that were lunatic and those that had the palsy and he did what? He healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Now, notice how chapter 5 starts. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, when Jesus was here, Jesus promised one thing, one thing, to the individual. He promised to make the individual whole. Now the word whole means completeness. You see, when Paul explains wholeness in first uh, say first in in Colossians two, verse nine, he said, For we are complete in him. Well, I think that's verse eight, for we are complete in him. Now, completeness means wholeness. Now, mankind, according to Paul's epistle to the church at Thessalonica, thank you, brother, mankind is made up of body, soul, and spirit. And when Paul talks about this, he said, I pray that the Lord will sanctify you wholly, body, soul, and spirit. Now, you see, when the multitudes came to Jesus and they had external problems, Jesus moved was moved with compassion and looked upon those people and he healed them. You see, Jesus is interested in healing the body. How many of you have been personally healed by God? Look at the hands that are raised. Is that part of God's plan? Definitely that's part of God's plan. We wouldn't want to take it away. But you see, after the multitude got together... And Jesus understood that they were following him for the external only, as that group followed him for the loaves and the fishes. Jesus said, now what I want you to do is sit down and I want to teach you. And Jesus then began to teach them a message that would heal them internally, change them from the inside out. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. He, he gave them the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes simply mean attitudes that you are to be or to become. Jesus is not just interested in the external. Now, the reason why that I'm calling your attention to this is because in many areas of our fellowship, and I'm not here to criticize our fellowship from the standpoint of not being willing to stick with it and do something about it, in many areas of our fellowship, the external is preached and practiced to the point that the internal means nothing at all. God forbid that that would ever happen to us. Brother Tenney said last evening, and this is part of our lesson, you must first be something before you do something. However, according to Scripture, you cannot separate character from conduct. Once you are, then you do. And the reason why that Jesus taught them, he saw that it would be easy for these people to follow him only for the miraculous. 
and only for the external. For this reason, then, a Pentecostal can become guilty, and I say guilty, of good, solid, wholesome, exuberant worship, and at the same time have a very critical, bitter, backbiting, carnal attitude. Jesus says, that's not what I want. And I think that's what he was trying to teach here in Matthew 25. While it is so important for us to praise the Lord and worship the Lord and talk in tongues and feel like that we're in heavenly places with the Lord, he also says it's important to keep our feet on the ground because there's more to this relationship than just love. And you will find in our present world any young man or any young woman who finds the delight of her heart in the opposite sex, who tries to create a relationship of, of love only, and adoration will end up in serious trouble if they do not understand the responsibilities of that relationship. For trailing all of us who are in love with the Master is a long train of responsibilities. And that's what Jesus Christ is trying to say. Turn with me all the way back to the book of Solomon, if you would, to the second chapter. The book of Solomon, for the most part, is a book that deals with our relationship with the Lord in the New Testament. You're talking about a book that's full of love and mushy things. This book of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, is full of it. For an example, the first, the second chapter... If you will look at verse 4, it says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Now, sick of love means love sick. Now, most of you know what it's like to be love sick. We have people here who perhaps have only been married for a short period of time, and we have people here who have been married a long time. Sister Grant and I will observe our 25th wedding anniversary in November of this year. And I can truthfully say that we have had a very good marriage. And if I had to choose all over again someone to marry, after living with her 25 years, she'd still be my first choice. Now, you will find in the Bible that the apostle tells us that charity covers a multitude of sins. Now, what he was really saying is this. Love makes you sick. And if you really love someone, you overlook a lot of their faults and a lot of their weaknesses. And isn't it true that sometimes in a church that, that gets divided on an issue... That it really all depends on whose idea it is before you agree to support it. And people get this way. And there are certain things that come forth that you know who's going to agree because of who introduced the idea. And friends always stick together. That's just the nature of people. And one of the hardest things in the world to do is to get 
a young man who is lovesick to sit down and in a very rational way figure out if the girl that he's dating is really the girl of his life. He sees only the good. I mean only the good. And he totally ignores the bad. And this is the reason why that it says, I am sick of love or I am lovesick. And there are so many mushy, mushy, mushy things in the book of Solomon. I'll tell you, it, it is a book of, it, it really sets a pattern for her romance. And it's dealing with Jesus Christ and his church and his true feelings. And the true feelings of the church about the Lord. There is, however, a scripture that seems to just be inserted right in chapter 2 that doesn't fit the context at all. That's verse 15. Notice what it says. It says, Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now when I first read this and looked at it, I saw that it didn't quite fit into the picture or the context of the scripture. But as I began to study this in light of all of the Bible scriptures, and that's the way we have to interpret scripture, you know, we just can't draw out a scripture and interpret that scripture without considering other Bible scriptures. This is the reason why we have so many false religions on the face of the earth that are predicated, for the most part, upon scripture, but not all the scriptures. Now, I can see this young lady as she is waiting the hour in which her lover is to appear. She's looking out the lattice and everything is just, uh, you know, tense and she's been ready for hours. She's waiting on him. She's in love. She's going out on a date. All she can possibly see in her mind are bright stars in the moonlight shining down through a big oak tree someplace. Oh, she's taken up with this idea. Now, I had four sisters, no brothers, but I know how girls are. You know, they like to play hard to find and hard to catch and all of this, but I very well remember my sisters. I remember my oldest sister. She'd get ready in the middle of the afternoon. and she's Her and Brother Rutherford are pastoring now up in Spooner, but I remember what she, she did one day. She got ready so early in the afternoon. I said, Joe, why are you getting ready so early? She said, my, she said, it's like 3 o'clock. I said, 3 o'clock, he's not coming till 6.30 or 7. And you know, she just, she got ready and she looked and she looked and she looked. See, he told her that he might be early. And I still remember when his old car came over the hill. I remember she looked at me, she ran in the bedroom and said, tell him when he knocks on the door, I'll be out in a minute. I couldn't figure that out. I mean, she was sick. Of love. She was lovesick. Well, I thought this man was a horrible choice, and I don't feel that way now. You couldn't talk to her about one thing that was wrong with Jimmy Rutherford. He was just the most handsome guy, the best looking guy, the best acting gentleman in the whole school. I mean, he was really a great guy. Now, what happens here is there's excitement, there's tension. This young lady is looking out the window. She's waiting on her lover. And it appears to me that, that I can just see somebody run in the room while she's looking out the window. And they take her and shake her and say, well, wait a minute, sis. 
before this date. Today is the day in which you were to work in the vineyard. You know, what about the little foxes now that, are, that have already crept in? While you want to be out here, you should be out there. For this is your responsibility this day. Now the scripture doesn't really tell us that's what's happening. But I think the context of it, not really fitting there, that what uh, Solomon is saying, but wait a minute. And Solomon is a man that ought to know a little bit about a love affair. But you see, he became derelict in his responsibilities to God and became a backslider in his heart and lost his precious walk with the Lord. And that's exactly what he's trying to say to us. Hey, it's more than dancing in the Spirit. Well, that's part of it. It's more than clapping your hands. It's, it's, it's more than just church and it's more than, than worship. God never intended the work of God to be confined to the four walls of an assembly hall someplace. He never intended your Christianity to be locked up inside of the, the Bible at your bedside. But there is a lost and a dying world. And he has left us in charge of his work. Love and worship is important, but work and responsibility are equally important. In Acts, the second chapter, verse 36, and I realize this scripture that I'm taking out of context somewhat because I really think it's dealing with the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, in the Old Testament, the relationship that Israel had with, he, uh, with God is different for the most part than the relationship we have with Jesus Christ today. For the law was a taskmaster. It was to teach them. It was cold and for the most part without love. And when they related to God in the Old Testament, they related more to Him as being Lord. And a Lord is one that you work for. But you see, He has become both Lord in Christ or the Anointed One or God. When you, when you read in the Scripture, Scriptures about Jesus becoming both Lord and God you automatically think in your mind of a doctrinal position. Lord of the Old Testament, God of the New, or Jesus is both the Lord and God of the Old Testament. But you see, to a Lord we work for, and to God we adore. And He is one to worship, but He is also in charge of the planet Earth, and we are stewards of His. Now, if you have an accelerated Christian education school, uh, most of you who are teaching in that school, or you pastors, have seen this particular Bible study right here, or this example, in one of the paces. Now, I really didn't take it from one of the paces. I was teaching this before I went through, through that, but they have the triangle, it's just inverted. It was just a part of my Bible studies that I have been teaching for a good number of years. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus said, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required. Now, what he is saying is that if you grant an individual a lot of liberty, 
you also have to make them understand that there's a lot of responsibilities that go with that liberty. See? If much is given, there has to be some requirement. And what I have done here, I have drawn a triangle showing one side liberty and one side responsibilities. Now, the reason why that I think that this is so valuable because, for the most part, we don't really understand what God is doing when He's training us for His work. Now, we are His children. How many of you have children? Do you know that, that, that rearing children is a, is a big job? But in the Scripture, the comparison to rearing a spiritual child is there as rearing a physical child. In other words, they're compared. He talks about milk that you give the child and milk that you give the new convert. He talks about meat that you give the older child. He talks about meat that you give the older saint. Now what happens a lot of times in our Christian experience, because we teach freedom and liberty and worship, we get caught up in a syndrome in which we're so happy and thrilled about being free that we think that that is all there is to God. Now if you want to spoil a child in a hurry, you take a young child, I mean a young child, who you are giving some liberties to, and let him go free in the house without bearing the responsibilities of his action, and you're going to have a spoiled brat for sure. Now, a few years ago, I, I was just kind of intrigued in training some dogs. I trained some bird dogs. I like to bird hunt. I, I don't get to bird hunt much. In fact, I haven't been bird hunting in a couple of years, but I, I really like it. But I trained some German short hair pointers. And my neighbor, who has a, a part mutt and a part something else, uh, that's a real mixed up mongrel, she came down and she said, uh, John, she said, uh, you know, I noticed you can get those dogs to sit in the backyard. I could go inside and drink a cup of coffee and they would not move. They wouldn't move off of command until I came back and said, uh, come, or broke that command. They just sit there. She said, how in the world do you train a dog? I said, well, Karen, number one, if you're training a dog, you've got to be smarter than the dog. And you see, if you're training children, you've got to be smarter and wiser than those children. But what I see a lot of times, I see children that literally fool their parents. They wrap their parents around their finger. Now, an example of that. You know, the preacher's preaching away and there's a kid right in the auditorium just crying. I mean, he's just bellowing his lungs out. He's screaming. He's disturbing everything. And the parent's saying, oh, now don't shh, be quiet and hold his mouth, you know, until he turns blue in the face. And, and then what are we going to do? And he just scream, he's going to scream, he's going to scream. And then the parent all of a sudden, you know, gets the idea, well, we can't disturb like this. We've got to take this kid outside. And then the more than stand up to make their exit, and the kid shuts up. 
Now, why did he shut up? Well, that's what he wanted. He didn't want to go outside. So, uh, you didn't want him to go out, but but now he, he wants to go. You see, in, in our, our church in Madison, we got some kids that they, when the parents get up to go outside, they shut up. They're happy as a lark. We've got others, however, that if they have to take them out, as soon as they pick up the kid to go outside, they start crying. Now, why is that true in some families and not in the others? Because, you see, one man has just inverted the process. Going outside to one means freedom, liberty. Going outside to the other means... You know what it means. And, and you, know, you know what the Bible says about, uh, about rearing children. Now, I know in our psychological age, we don't feel that we have the authority to lay a hand on them. But I believe that God ran those nerve tips right out to the end so that they get the message. And, and you see, it's, it's that same way now, and you're living for God. There's a lot of people that just, oh, they want the liberty, and then all of a sudden some crises come, and they, well, how come God doesn't bless me? You know, why do things fall apart in my life? You know, there is such a thing as being anointed, and there's such a thing as living an anointed life. You will find almost anybody that's filled with the Holy Ghost can stand up, and under the anointing, they can testify and tell of the goodness of the Lord. But God wants more than just an anointed testimony. He wants an anointed life. And the first thing that we need to learn before we mature is how to appropriate the blessings of God upon our living. And there is only one way that this will be possible, and that is when we equate liberty with responsibility. If God gives us too much without requiring too much, we become spoiled brats like the little children. A little child, and I, you know, we had a couple in our, our church call us up. They need to come over, and before they came over for some counseling, she said, is your home child-proofed? I said, what do you mean child-proofed? She said, well, Brother Grant, you raised three boys. You should know what child-proofed. That means, do, do, have, you, have you taken everything and put it away, you know? And uh, I said, well, well, no, you better do that before we come. Well, <laughs> knowing that I couldn't train their kid, you know, in a few minutes, I, I, I child-proofed my house real fast. But before they left, I asked her, the lady of I said, now, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about this. She said, oh, you've got to put everything out of the way because she said, uh, you know, he's hyperactive and he tears up everything. I said, well, now, wait just a minute. Now, if you're just turning that kid loose to run in the house, you shouldn't do that. Well, what do you do? You know, if there's anything that's really at fault in our American system is this. For the most part, we all get married when we're in our early 20s and some in, when they're teenagers. Well, I've been married 25 years almost, so that tells something about me. But, you know, really what happens is that kids train kids. It doesn't really work. Because we don't really have much going for us in our public school system, in our society, or even in the church. 
that train parents how to be parents. And to take in practice on precious children who have eternal souls. It just doesn't make sense to me. Now, maybe you never thought of it. I think you need to be very careful in planning for your family that you know that you've got your act together. It really takes more discipline on the part of the parent to train the child than it does on the child. It's harder on you. And so when the child crawls across the floor and reaches up to get something that the child shouldn't get, he should be made to know that this is off limits. And all you have to say is no. Now, children are smarter than what you think. They can actually learn how to lie before they can talk. They can. Because I have seen this many, many times. One of our boys was just a chronic liar. I mean, a real chronic liar. I don't care what you ask him. He always shook his head. And he couldn't even talk. We said, now why is he doing that? He just hates to get caught doing something he shouldn't do. And you could look at him and you say, Roy, did you do that? He couldn't say a word. He knew what yes was and he knew what no was, but he couldn't talk. Now if he's old enough to do that, he's old enough to keep his hands where his hands ought to be. Now we won't go into a lot of... (laughs) You may say, well see it just might be that in your upbringing that you picked up a lot of traits as a Christian that are quite detrimental to you today. Quite detrimental. Now... Let's talk about the salvation syndrome. A syndrome is what? A disease. It is a disease that is reoccurring. By that I mean it it seems to go away and it just comes back. It goes away and it comes back. It goes away and it comes back. Each time that it comes back, it is more severe than it was the first time. Now, all of us who have given our life to the Lord, we enjoy our position with Calvary. Isn't that true? Jesus Christ died, He was buried, and He arose again so that I could repent, be baptized, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. I enjoy my relationship with Jesus Christ and my relationship with Calvary. And when people first come to the Lord, it's very, very important that they understand that basic fundamental doctrine and that relationship that they have with the Lord at Calvary. Oh, that's so important. And this is the reason why that I like to see new people constantly thanking the Lord and praising the Lord for what He has done. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you, Lord, for taking them away. Thank you, God, for judging them beforehand and casting them into the lake of fire. Thank you, O God, for all that you have done. When you are new in God, more attention from the church 
is focused on you than anybody else. It's like the addition of a new child into the home. Who gets the most attention? The child. Why? Because you see, that, that child has no responsibility to the home, doesn't change his own diapers, doesn't fix his bottle, doesn't make up his bed. The world has its syndrome. It is possible then for the church to develop a syndrome. We call it a disease because it's based upon selfishness. The Greeks had three words for love. Eros, which was a sensual type of love, the love type that a child has. Philia, which is a brotherly love, and agape, which is the ultimate in love. Love is a growing relationship. Contrary to what most people say, you did not come to God because you loved Him. You came to God because you feared Him. Now, before you received the Holy Ghost, you developed a love relationship. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. He reached out while we were sinners and called us and compelled us and convicted us. Quite frankly, I came to the altar because I was scared to death. Some preacher put me in hell before I actually got there and made it so real that I ran, I slid into the altar like a runner sliding into second base. And when I began to repent, and I think I can show you in the scripture where your love comes from. But you see what happens to us because we don't really understand the true meaning of love we get caught up in this selfish type love. It's always, church, what you going to do for me? Pastor, preach it my way. Everybody come over to my house and help me. See? Pray that I'll get a job. Pray for my healing. Everything is me, 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 me. And we become very, very selfish. Now let me show you what happens when we become selfish. Turn with me to Philippians, the third chapter. And we'll read verse 15. Philippians 3, 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, Notice he uses the word walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. In other words, the people who are walking after my example, you mark those people, follow them. For many of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. In other words, Paul wept when he wrote this. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Is it possible? Is it possible, Brother Tenney, that the very thing that saved us, that we can become an enemy of it? That's why we call it a syndrome. It's a disease. After a while... It's predicated upon you, not upon the Lord. 
And notice what happened to these people. He said, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Now, here are three categories that he places these people in. Number one, God. God is their belly, or their belly is their God. Now, the word belly here does not mean the physical stomach. Well, it could mean that. What did Jesus say in John seven thirty seven? Upon that great day of the feast, Jesus stood crying, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture have said, out of his belly or his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And you see, their innermost being is their God. That simply means to satisfy their own desires, the cravings of their own soul, to get their own way, to do their own thing. To be left alone. To enjoy the liberty without the responsibilities. is a syndrome. It's a disease. It may be different from the world that's walking in a circle, but that's what it causes you to do. Whose glory is in their shame. Now, I'm just going to turn this off and if I can get it off here. I, have, I would leave it on, okay? I know how to do it, Brother Alexander. You showed me, but we won't take the time to do it. Listen, whose glory is in their shame. Did you know that I have seen so many people brag about things that they do that's wrong? That it's pathetic. Now, when he says glory in their shame, that simply means they boast about their sins. What do you mean boasting about their sins? One lady says, well, I'll tell you what I did. Bless God, she called me on the phone, and I got upset, and I just got back on the phone and called her up, and I gave her a piece of my mind for sure. If she's going to call me over here and give me a piece of her mind, I'll give her a piece of my mind. I said, now, wait a minute. Is what she did really that bad? You better believe that it is. Well, why are you bragging about doing the equal? You know, the district the district has a financial plan. I'll just throw this in. <laughs> it won't hurt your saints to hear this because every now and then preachers drop out and you ask a question, why? One man says, I'm not going to pay my tithes because everybody else don't pay theirs. What do you mean everybody else? Well, we got some preachers don't. I said, sounds to me like you got a strong conviction about them paying tithes. Yes. And you realize you need to pay them. Uh Yeah. Well, if it's so important that you pay your tithes, why would you jeopardize your relationship with God because somebody else is jeopardizing theirs? Why are you bragging about this? Sometimes young people go to school and they say, you know what I did? Mom didn't know, but this is what I did. And they tell other young people, you know, back in the days of the miniskirts, you know, moms made the skirts long for the girls, and they'd roll them up at the top. Where I, Somebody said, yeah, you know, we know all about that, don't we? You know, the kids were doing that. And they'd brag about that. And you let them down, come church time, boy, you look holy. <laughs> Glory in their shame. You know, we can't get away with fighting carnality with carnality, bitterness with bitterness. 
and who mind earthly things. That simply means they become materialistic minded. Going back to what I originally stated, church is a part of their home. Church is a part of their job. It's not that they build their home around church and God. It's just a part of it. Stewardship is not a part of what you are. It's a sum total of what you are. See? It is a sum total of what you are. And you know, Calvary is a symbol of unselfishness. Is it not? From the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus cried and prayed, Father, not my will but thine be done. And he knelt down upon the sands and buried his face right there. And when he got up, knowing he had to go to Calvary, from that moment on you find that the whole plan is a plan of unselfishness. Even when they came to get Jesus when he was betrayed, Peter took out his sword and he was trying to cut this man's head off. This man ducked and his ear fell on the ground. While Peter was wrestling around there and the disciples were trying to hold him, Jesus rebuking him and he was trying to figure out how he could get even. Jesus was down parting the grass looking for the man's ear. And what did Jesus do? I know some people feel that every time they're touched to the Lord and healed that they have to be in the right doctrine, the right church, and right with God. And that's not true. Jesus even healed a man who came after him after his life. You see, Jesus never healed anybody just to get them out of pain. I said just to get them out of pain. But Jesus took that ear and put it back on that man and said, Peter, put up your sword, for they that live by the sword shall perish by the sword. And his dying words on the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Don't get caught up in the salvation syndrome. My time's running away. I've got just uh, one other transparency that I want to show you, and then we'll close. We have a session this afternoon. Is that right, Brother Mary? Moving toward perfection. Now, there are two doctrines that are taught in the Bible, and I was hoping that I'd get a chance to teach those two doctrines here in this count meeting. One is on justification, and one is on sanctification. The doctrine of justification and sanctification are so closely related, yet they kind of move in parallel poles, but not totally together. You see, in justification, Jesus died for you. I have my own vernacular that I use. Justification means just as if I had never sinned. You see, when Jesus Christ died for you and took your sins away, He made you just as if you had never sinned. And if you go to hell over a sin, it won't be by because of any sin that you have rendered to God. It won't be any past thing that He's taken away. You see, in the Old Testament, the doctrine of atonement was taught. Seventy-two times in the Old Testament the word kephar, or atonement, is mentioned. Did you know in the New Testament the word atonement appears only one time and it's not really translated atonement? It's translated 
In Romans 5, 9, it's translated reconciliation. While in the King James, it uses the word atonement, but if you look up the original, it means to be reconciled. Now, that simply means the New Testament does not teach atonement. You may say, Brother Grant, it really doesn't. You see, the word kephar means to cover. When Jesus Christ appeared upon the scene, the annunciation of Jesus Christ was this. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God that covers, that takes away the sin of the world. We are not atoned by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, we are washed clean. They've been taken away. When justification appeared for us at Calvary, Jesus Christ's blood took away the sin of the world. You see, Paul put it like this. Some men's sins go beforehand to be judged and some follow after them. The truth of the matter is the teaching of the New Testament church is the judgment seat of Christ is set up right now. And we may all appear now before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, in the Bible, in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, it's called the throne of grace. But when we appear before the throne of grace, we appear before the throne of grace for mercy. Mercy has to be extended before grace can be granted. Mercy is the withholding of judgment and grace is that anointing of God that rests upon your life. Not because of what you are, but because of what He is. And this is the reason why that we should never allow the cross to become a symbol of selfishness to us. And then when we repent of our sins, those sins are killed within us, according to Romans 6, and then they are buried with Him in baptism. Baptism is a type of hell. It's a type of the burial. It's a type of the grave. And our sins are cast into hell once and for all. You see, sin cannot be destroyed because it's a part of the spirit world. But it can be confined, locked into a specific place forever and ever and ever. In hell, sin appears and occurs throughout eternity. In justification, he did what? He died for me. But there's another doctrine that parallels that. It's called sanctification. It means to be set apart or set aside for a specific use or purpose. Now Jesus explained it like this. Whosoever seeketh to save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life. You see, here lose means to spend. Just like you reach in your pocket and you, you get a coin. What good is this coin if it is only kept? For yourself. It's a medium of exchange. Exchange. So it means you take it and you purchase something with it. You change this for something else or you exchange it for something else. In justification, he died for you, but in sanctification, you die for him. Listen to this Hebrews 6, verse 1 through 3. Wherefore, leaving the principles and the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection. You see, we got to leave the salvation syndrome. If we don't do that, he said, we become very selfish and we can fall away even to the point of becoming a reprobate. 
Are you still out there? I'm not trying to scare the daylights out of you. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. Even to the point of becoming a reprobate that's explained in Romans 1. See, you've got to be more than what you were when you came to God because all of life denotes growth and conversion, which we'll deal with tomorrow. Let us go on into perfection. There is a passage of Scripture that's in the Bible that does not use the word sanctification, but I think it explains it probably better than any other place in the Bible. And that's Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 1 and 2. We beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants people who become adults in Him. While I do appreciate love and unity, and that is a premium, it's a great thing that's found among us, and I appreciate it so much. And nothing can compensate for that. I see Paul as he was shipwrecked out on the Isle of Melitia. And while all the barbarous people were gathering up sticks and such to build a fire, what was Paul doing? The Bible says he was gathering up sticks. Now, if anybody had a legal reason not to, not to gather up sticks, it would have been Paul. Why? He was a prisoner. If somebody would have come to Paul and said, Paul, why are you gathering up sticks? Paul would have probably said, to warm myself. But my, you're a prisoner. He had been set free, but he was still a prisoner. Let the, let the barbarous people build the fires. No, it was just in the nature of Paul that he was going to do his part in whatever he was involved in. And I can just see Paul as he looks up and says, well, I'm getting up sticks to build a fire. Well, there's a fire going already. But you see, it was Paul's nature to do his own part. And when he built his own fire, then out of that came a snake, latched itself onto his hand, and Paul threw that thing in, in the fire and just kept on praising the Lord. Now all these barbarous people are down on their knees trying to create him or make him as a god, worship him as a god. Basically, I think that story teaches me one thing. Paul was a man who was willing to fight his own devils and build his own fires. And that's exactly what God's looking for today. He's looking for Christians who will stand on their own two feet, fight their own devils, and build their own fires. Going back quickly to one other tran uh, transparency, I'd like for you to stand, if you would, as we close. I have this from zero to seventy. We have examples of men in the Bible who matured themselves in God. And understood what they were supposed to do and be. Daniel was a man who primarily stood alone while the three Hebrew children were supportive of him and he of them. Daniel served God in a different capacity than which they did because he was among the higher echelons of the Babylonian society. He went into Babylonian captivity when he was a young, young man. But what most people don't understand is this. When Daniel went into the lion's den, he was 90 years old. 
90 years old. He had been given so much liberty in Babylon. But on the other hand, because he had been given so much liberty, he was still willing to do the work of God and bear the responsibility of keeping the doctrine of Jehovah worship alive. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord as Brother Merrick comes.